Better train, more capable staff make successful organisations. We know that. But do you have the right learning culture to nurture your people? Stay with us for top tips to improve yours. Hello, I'm Nigel Cassidy and this is the CIPD Podcast. Now more than ever before, every business has been forced to rethink how its people gain the skills they need to do their jobs. And it's the learning and development teams who are in the thick of it. But there's a way to go. CIPD research shows that only around a third of L&D types feel that they've achieved a positive culture for learning at their place. So this podcast isn't so much about the mechanics of virtual learning in the age of COVID-19, with or without Zoom on a dodgy line. It's about, deep breath here, learning cultures. It's about spotting what's wrong with your learning environment at work and how you can go about changing it for the better. With us, an occupational psychologist turned HR practitioner, turned member of the CIPD research team. She's led much of the CIPD's work on L&D. It's Mel Green. Hello. Hi, Nigel. And we've a real-life head of learning and development with first-hand experience of managing the learning culture in a large, complex organisation from NatWest Bank. It's Gavin McQuillan. Hi, Nigel. So, Gav, let's start by trying to get our heads around what we mean by an organisation's learning culture. And I know you've got 65,000 staff who all need to be trained in what they do, I suppose in security and using ever-changing technology uh, in helping customers and the bank to make money. I would have thought it's the bank staff training needs that dictate what you teach people. So for you, what is the learning culture of an organisation? There's sort of an implication it goes a bit deeper. Yeah, absolutely. And I think traditionally, Nigel, you're right, you know, especially in financial services, which, uh, as we know, are highly regulated. I think there's an opinion that learning culture would be about, you know, what do we need to know to keep our staff and our customers safe? And to a certain extent, that is still true today. But I think as things are changing in, in the world and, and people, and certainly us from a from a NatWest perspective, really can see the value of of you know, a true learning culture becoming a true learning organization, we're really, really starting to to think about how can we empower people to learn um, what they want, when they want, um, not just to support them in the role that they do today, but the, the career they want to have tomorrow. Um, but also bringing forward the, the notion that learning isn't something that is done to you, learning is something that you would want to do. So actually, how do we um, empower our learners to, to kind of take um, that into their own hands and, and to progress forward? So when we talk about a learning culture, for me, it's not just about for, formal learning, it's how do you create that environment where people are learning every day, people are empowered to learn, people are sharing what they're learning but it's not just for the good of the organization it's actually for the good of the individual as well and, and that's something that we can you know really keen to develop in, in that waste as we move forward now mel green we have this rather stark cipd research finding that two-thirds of lnd practitioners don't seem to think that they have a positive learning culture i mean the cynic might say well they're the learning experts in their business so they can't be doing their jobs very well so i think there's a couple of pieces to unpack there and i think Gauss said it really nicely when he said it's not just about formal learning, it's about the informal things as well. It's not just about training. So I think the first thing to unpack is what do we really mean by learning culture? Is it something that we can ever fully achieve? And also whose responsibility is it to create it? So, of course, learning professionals absolutely need to be spearheading a positive environment for learning. But we know it's it's more than just formal training. We know it's more than just individual learning. It's really important that when we talk about learning cultures or the learning environment, 
it takes into account the systemic environment for learning. So we've done some research on this, which is all about assessing the evidence on learning cultures. And it's clear that it's such a broad concept that also feeds into things like whether an organisation is willing to take new learning on board, whether it can innovate, what management practices do you have in place to support learning, but also that informal um, sort of reflective stuff. And, and actually, that's something that L&D professionals should champion, but ultimately, they're not the only player in that space. So it needs to be a broader organisational vision, I think. But if I could just push you on those findings, why is it that L&D people are saying, they obviously have some concept of what this is, and they say that uh, organisations don't have a very positive culture. So what are they getting at? What's making them unhappy? So we've done some research more slightly more recently on this, which is our learning and skills at work survey. And we asked uh, learning professionals what their current environment for learning looks like. And there's some really interesting findings there about line management. So around half said that line managers don't necessarily always support learning or facilitate learning. And while they feel like senior leaders have a vision for learning, there's that disconnect between what line managers support and facilitate and what senior leaders say. So there's some really interesting sort of environmental factors to think about there. And of course, another thing to sort of point out is we're talking about learning culture as an outcome here. It's an ongoing process. We always need to think about how we update and iterate how we help people to learn. I think COVID's shown us that more than ever, that we sometimes need to rapidly shift. And that's really what about a learning environment is. But it's never, it's not sort of a one-stop one shop. I'd like to take up uh, with uh, Gav that point you're making about management. I mean, isn't half the problem that managements too often see training and learning as a kind of emergency fix? You know, people can't work the new kit, so they have to do some emergency training, or maybe they force you to do some online health and safety course in your own time often. It's all reactive rather than proactive. I mean, really, a bit of a box-ticking exercise. Yeah, and I think I, th- I think to Mel's point, I think probably the reason that learning professionals, and, and maybe slightly controversial, is we, we've created this problem by that approach, Nigel, that you talk about, which is, you know, making everything mandatory, making everything that, that, that becomes a box-ticking exercise. So in a way, we are probably a, a, a little bit culpable in, in, in what we've created. Um, that being said, I totally agree with Mel's point that leaders play such an intrinsic part in creating this culture. Um, and for me, it's it's not so much about a, a learning culture, it's about a, a culture of continuous learning is, I think, where we should be driving to now um, in society. Because I think what we know from all the various surveys on skills and the, the change in marketplace, people are going to have to continue to learn as they develop their careers rather than just seeing learning as something that you did maybe at school or in, in university. And then once you get into the corporate world, you can maybe take the foot off the gas a little bit. Um, so I think managers play a key part in that. Managers play a key part in... I think we need to, you know, empower them to to really incentivize people to learn, to let people see the importance of it. Um, but to do that, I think we need to speak their language. I think we need to understand that learning isn't the top of everybody's agenda. And um, while we would like it to be, people are very busy. There's a lot going on. So how do we how do we help people see the value that it adds, and then how do they build it into their kind of day to day work? Um, and I think that's a real key part for us. But, but to Mel's point. This, this will never work unless we have the leaders from the top right the way down bought in and really being, being you know, role modelling this uh, for me. So leaders as teachers is probably a, an old fashioned phrase. It's probably the best one I've got at the moment around how they can really start to, to supercharge this kind of culture of continuous learning that I think we're all striving for. 
so to simplify some of that, Mel, what Gav seems to be saying is that people have got to want to learn to see the need to learn, uh, and it shouldn't just be a process which is uh, forced upon them, or indeed uh, something that they're denied when they uh, want and ask for more training. Yeah, absolutely. And it needs to be something that's important to the individual, but it needs to link to organisational outcomes as well. And I, I think when we're thinking about what a learning culture is that there's different parts to it isn't there there's what the individual needs to learn to do their day-to-day role there's what they need to develop but it's also how teams need to adapt and change and how we feed that into what our organization does and ultimately adapts to as well so there just needs to be that golden thread that's really clear throughout an organization that learning is the way we do things around here mistakes are okay iterating is okay and absolutely senior leaders need to be really bought into that for, for that to, to really stick well gavin you were run learning and development at a large bank. Clearly, there's an organisation which is very focused on its uh, financial goals. So presumably, you're pretty uh, closely plugged in to the management of your organisation. Just talk us through how uh, the culture of learning has changed in the last few years uh, at your place. Uh, One hopes for the better? I I think some of the, the big changes for us over the last couple of years is that, you know, we've been working really, really hard to align our learning strategy with business strategy. So, so to Mill's point again before, that relevance, you know, people need to see the relevance of and the understanding of how learning will be an enabler for for, for what we're trying to achieve as a business. So we've, we've worked a lot um, you know, a lot of effort has gone into working with senior leaders and, and supporting that. I guess um, what really, really helped us is that, and kind of the, the, the cherry on the top of that work was that um, Alison Rose, our new CEO, is really focused and, and one of her big priorities was um, to create this culture of continuous learning, to really focus on us becoming a learning organisation and investing not just in learning for um, our colleagues, but also how can we help the, you know, the broader society around some of the challenges that we've got. So what? So what more? What more would you do with people now, other than just giving them the obvious tools to enable them to carry their jobs? What's the extra bit that you've added that makes this an improved culture? Yeah. So I think the first thing is we're really encouraging people to prioritize learning. So not just the leaders, but the learners to say, look, this is important. How do you prioritize it within your day? So, you know, we, we did something which, you know, I'm sure there'll be many different learning professionals listening to this have an opinion where we came out with a people pledge, which says we want you to spend 10% of your time learning. Now, for me personally, what was important about that was not the number, because I'm sure you could have a great debate around what number's right, but what was important was the sentiment behind that number to say, look, this is important, we want you to prioritise learning. We created a learning academy, and again, that was about just making learning really easy for people to find. And then we did some some really key things around moving away, not just to have technical learning, but really focusing on those, what I, what I would call the power skills for people to, in the future. So things like critical thinking, innovation, building relationships, uh, learning agility. So actually, how do we help people grow as individuals for, as I've said today, the job that they do today, but the career that they want to have tomorrow? So good investment, good empowerment, raising the profile of what we're doing. But but Nigel, you know, we are on a journey here. And I think, as we've all said, I don't think you'll ever be finished. We'll never be finished this piece of work because things keep moving around. Um, But that's some of the, I guess, real practical things that we've seen change in the last kind of 12 months. Well, great to hear what you're doing in this field. Let me sort of just make it slightly more theoretical with Mel Green. You obviously don't want to sort of blindly start improving 
specific courses or specific things. You've got to first kind of stop out and work out what state your learning culture is in. And can you, so can you talk us through some of the things you might do to sort of assess or benchmark uh, how you're doing this so that when you make changes, they're actually going to produce some dividends? Sure. And I, I think Gal shares some really nice examples of practical things that you can do, which is why it's so important to take targeted action. So think about where you might need to improve things or build on good practice as well. I think the first thing to say is that learning culture is really broad and there's a danger that we only focus on one thing. So we need to measure multiple things. And there's also, I think, a real temptation to use things like training uptake as a measure of learning culture. And of course, that's a really important one. We want to understand who's undertaking learning, whether that's formal or informal, who in the businesses is that, are there different groups who learn more than others? Are there different teams that are struggling? That's really important. But I think we also need to look at the broader picture. So we know learning culture has lots of different aspects to it. Even things like employee influence, voice and innovation are important. So thinking a little bit about some of those other organisational indicators that can tell us how learning is used at work. So many of us will have a culture survey or an engagement survey that can give us an insight into whether people feel like learning is supported or whether sort of iteration and new ideas are supported too. That's a really good indication of whether new learning and innovation is really fed into how things are done in the organisation that's a little bit different. And also there's, there's things like whether people are using the tools on offer um, whether people feel like they're supported by their manager to learn. So really a suite of different things are really needed here to make sure we're not just talking about that formal learning and thinking about some of the other things that need to be in place as well. Yeah, again, I think, you know, I think what Mel talks here is the formal stuff for me is almost hygiene factors. And I think sometimes as learning professionals, we're, we're too focused on learning hours or things like that. They're an important part of the journey, but for me, they're not the biggest thing. For me, it's those kind of cultural indicators of behavioural change. So, for example, you know, do you see greater innovation? Do you see more knowledge sharing going on in your business? Feedback's a great one for me. You know, feedback is such a simple thing, but it's a great way of developing a learning culture. So you see in, you know, people giving feedback, how do you kind of propagate that? So, yeah, I, I, I really like Mel's kind of analogy there around those hygiene factors are important. But 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 that's what they are, hygiene factors. Where are those big kind of cultural and behavioural changes that you're seeing and how do you measure them? And that's that's tougher. And that's why I think sometimes as learning professionals, we do like some of the easier stuff because it's there. This is this is tough to measure. And um, I think that's part of the continual kind of focus that we all should have as, uh, as learning professionals around what are those measures to help you understand if you're uh, making headway or not. Let's just be clear what you mean by hygiene factors. Yeah, so what I mean by that is I think in the past we've been really good as Mel talked about, around measuring what people do around formal pieces of learning. So, you know, how many hours do people spend on learning? How many courses? What's, you know, what's the attendance? And as I say, that, that hey, stays no apart. No more away days. You know, well, that's a different conversation. <laughs> right. So they're, they're great to let you know how you're getting on, but I think just that on its own um, tells you more about the efficiency of your learning proposition rather than the culture that you're driving. It helps, but I think to Mel's point, you need those behavioural things and those cultural changes as well, and to measure them and bring the two together, then you start to understand progress. Mm. 
And talking of bringing people together, we've heard heard already reference to management. Uh, Mel, it is hard to change the culture if L&D is marooned in a kind of, of silo, you know, semi-detached from the bosses uh, and the business goals, and also out of touch with individuals who now, of course, are scattered all over the place during COVID. Yeah, so, so I think it's really important that I think, I think, Gav, you, you've said, you've used this term before, sort of speaking the language of managers, because we know that managers are really key, but we also know that managers have a huge amount of constraints and, and pressure on them as well. They need to deliver on operational goals, which really should involve people management goals, but we know often they, they might not. So it's all about un- helping them understand why this learning is of benefit to them, because ultimately we're trying to drive an outcome here. If we're talking about creating a learning culture, we're doing that for a reason. We want to see more innovation. We might want to see improved skills. We might want to drive to more knowledge sharing, for example. And all of those ultimately, if done well, are going to impact how people perform, how people develop. And ultimately that's going to impact the bottom line, which is really important for managers because it will help them deliver what they want to deliver. So really speaking that language, I think is, is so important. Isn't there a bit of tension here, Gavin, because we're talking about the way to make the organisation more effective, to uh, make uh, people have more uh, rewarding careers. But of course, um, the pressures on organisations are enormous and managers cannot deliver for people. I mean, jobs are going in places. So how do you, is, is that a barrier to actually winning more trust from people? Um, I don't know if it's a barrier. I guess I can I can probably turn that on its head and, and tell you what my opinion on that would be, which is, I think now, you know, the concept, you know, we, we, you know, if you think about working for a bank, you know, 20, 30 years ago when I joined, people thought they had a job for life. I, the, the, you know, that that's not anything that exists anymore. So I guess for us, the way we look at it is if we're investing in people's skills and development, yeah, it might be for a career that they're having with NatWest, but it also might be for something that's going to help them propel on the next stage of their career that might be in a different organisation, a different um, line of, of industry or, you know, in something totally different. So I think how you win that trust is by, by just making it a key part of your employee value proposition so again this gets gets back to this point around yeah we need to train people in for their jobs to do today but actually what we're trying to do is give them lifelong learning skills and lifelong learning that they can they can take and go and do you know many different things with that and and you know that i think is where you start to to win back some of that trust you know so for example mm-hmm. you know as as people leave that west then what we're looking at is how do we help them leave with you know leave them well how do we continue to keep investing them after they've left it from a skills perspective um so that they feel supported so you know you can't come away from the from the reality of what that looks like but it, but i think you can help people and, and that's where i think from a purposeful perspective we're trying to move to Okay, so Mel Green, uh, I know you've looked uh, across the piece at different ways that organisations have uh, implemented uh, changes to their kind of cultures. Are there any particular signs that uh, things are improving? So I think when it comes to measuring progress, there, there are certainly some of the indicators that you can measure over time. So things like whether people take part in learning, how people feel managers are supporting them, how how we sort of help people to learn things like that. But I, I think what our research very much suggests is that when we talk about learning cultures, whether or not creating a huge culture shift is the most effective way thing to do is up for debate. So when we look at the learning cultures literature and academic research, there's it, it's a really broad concept. But what is less clear is what's most effective 
what pieces should we really be focusing on? So we really suggest that we reframe that culture piece as the environment for learning and use some of these factors that I talked about as a framework to measure progress. So look at things like people management practices, how they help people learn and influence organisational decision making, whether they have a voice, that sort of thing, to really think about how things are changing, but really tie it to tangible organisational practices instead of thinking about a huge wild-scale culture change it might be more effective to think about how we can create a supportive environment for learning and tie that back to a tangible organisational practice. What's changing, I I think, across the industry, and I'm sure, you know, many people who do similar jobs to me would would acknowledge this, that I think the interest in learning has changed. I think um, we're seeing it move from, and potentially being seen as a cost and investment. I think we're seeing the C-suite far more engaged around trying to understand what skills and capabilities their workforce needs, and actually seeing it as that kind of competitive advantage around how we'll move things forward. We We know there will be a skill shortage around certain key areas. So actually, I think being able to see learning as a strategic partner rather than something that was done to people, as you say, Nigel, to help them use systems is changing. And I think we see that um, across many, many boardrooms across the world that we're in. So for me, that maybe doesn't talk to your cultural piece, but I think it starts to help drive that culture because it's now seen as a strategic imperative, whereas maybe it wasn't in the past. Maybe, Gavin, just tell us a little bit more about what you actually do all day and every day to kind of push this process forward. I mean, L&D, let's be honest, is a bit of a mystery to people in other parts of the business. From my perspective, I think... I think, first of all, it's about, you know, building relationships and engaging people. I think you do need to be close to the business. I think you need to get that foot in the door. And when you've got that foot in the door, you need to be thinking about, you know, how you're building relationships, how you're listening, how you're adding value. So a big part of my job is about understanding the strategy of the bank and then being able to overlay the strategic direction of L&D and talk about how we're how we're, um, uh, how we're how we're adding value. So that's one part of it. I think the second part is is, you know, that, that talking to people in the, in the voice that they want to hear. So we're continually thinking about how do we engage people? And that's not just in what they're learning, how they're learning, but how we engage them to get them to learn. So, you know, we spend a lot of time on that. We still spend some good time around um, solution development, as you would expect. Um, curation is obviously a big part for my team around actually finding the, the great learning. And then the final part is just how do you make learning easy for people? So we know that people are time poor. Um, we, you know, how are we just making uh, learning and easy for people to find on the formal piece but on that informal piece again you know Mel said it you know it's not the responsibility of L&D to to create this culture it's the responsibility of everybody in the organization I think where the L&D professionals play a bigger and bigger part is how do we help encourage that culture how do we propagate it how do we encourage it and we do that in many many different ways through you know great systems and technology you know helping people with those kind of great behaviors and really just helping people role model that and engaging those leaders, as we said before, around how do you create that safe environment where people want to innovate, people want to take risks. So a lot of our development is about creating the culture that we want people to have as well. Um, as well as doing probably quite a few emails still, unfortunately, in my day to day. I just want to ask Mel about uh, the culture of an organisation you know, in terms of learning. Is that not somewhat broken up because everybody is scattered? I mean, maybe people who are stuck at home might be less willing to learn new things when they're not kind of steeped in the house culture. You know, all that stuff that comes from from the structure of being at work, having chats around the, uh, the cooler, being supervised, being able to ask questions across the desk. I mean, homeworking must mess with uh, the way we learn. I think it changes the way we access 
best learning and how we do it organically. Because as you said, Nigel, it is more difficult when you are remote working to grab someone for a quick chat or ask someone very quickly if they've got five minutes. But I don't think it's impossible when we're doing that remotely. And I think if we really do think we've got a really positive environment for learning, it doesn't require supervision and structure. We want people to really be empowered to learn on their terms and be able to access that when they need it. So actually there's some aspects of remote and digital working that can actually really support that. So we know organisations are thinking more and more about how they make sure that their learning is digital and accessible. But we also do know that we perhaps need to think about how we facilitate that more social informal side and it's really important again that I'll say it again managers are really important here because they can really help teams be more cohesive they might need to spend a bit more time thinking about how they facilitate that knowledge exchange and those 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 collaborations but I certainly don't think it's impossible and if anything it's a really good opportunity for organizations and LG teams to think about how we change things up and make sure people can access learning when they need it in a, in a method that suits them as well. Okay, and Gavin, do you want to say any more about what the pandemic has taught you? Yeah, I think so. I think it's accelerated our strategy to to Mill's point in the, in the digital space. So we were on a, a virtual, you know, kind of journey anyway that's just accelerated that. Um, I think you know, from a digital uptake point of view, we are seeing far more people. You know, if we if we talk about kind of traditional LMSs for a minute, um, you know, forty one percent of all interactions now are done on an app and a mobile device rather than a desktop. So, you know, we would have, you know, we hoped we would get there, but you know, the the pandemic has accelerated that to Mill's point, where people are are have got more choice around how they want to learn. I guess what it's made us focus on is. When people are sitting at home, they've got so much information hitting them, haven't they? From from various different sources. People are on Zoom a lot. We hear about the, the the great Zoom fatigue. So I think what we're thinking about is how do we engage people so that we can get our messages across in that environment, but also understand that in that environment, people people haven't got a lot of energy. So actually, how do we make sure that what we're giving to people is relevant? How do we give people choice? I think that's really, really important. And how do we try and give them as a personalised experience as possible? So for me, those are three ingredients of, of our strategy that we're working on that I guess have been accelerated because of the COVID situation and people being at home just to try and make it um, as easy for people to do um, as we, we go we go forward. And just, uh, this is a bit of a wild question, Gavin, but uh, do you think that corporate calamities like banks overreaching themselves, uh, obviously before your uh, personal time at NatWest, might have been prevented by a strong learning culture at the top? Yeah, and I don't know I don't know if a, a learning culture stops people doing bad things. What I hope, I hope it does is it lets people analyse what they've done, reflect on, you know, the good things and the bad things and move forward. You know, I think we can sometimes you know, as a society, maybe this is just us being very British, that we love to analyse what we've not what we've done badly rather than what we've done well. So I think a learning culture allows you to, yeah, absolutely reflect on the things that people should learn from and what how could that have how could that have done better and the emotional side of it. But I think we should also get better at analysing the root cause of success. Let's play on our strengths a little bit more. So I think there's a balance there. But for me, that learning culture is where you stop and pause and think, right, what could we have done better? What has gone well? How do we build on it and how do we learn and, and move forward so that perhaps we don't make the mistakes that we've made in the past? I guess if you don't have that learning culture, then you don't take that time to reflect. You're, you're not as attuned to that, to the emotions of it, and perhaps you continue to do what you've always done. Um, Mel, you were nodding during that. Do you want to add anything there? Yeah, so I think that's a really interesting question, which really feeds into the 
what is a learning culture and why is it broader than individual learning? It needs to be about organisational learning as well. And I think, Gav, you put it really nicely when you said it allows people to take a pause and think about what went well, maybe what didn't go well. And really, when we're talking about what a learning culture is, that's really integral. It's about being open to mistakes, but also learning from them and also using those mistakes and changing how things are done. And really, that requires a huge amount of buy-in and also people to think about how people management practices feed into that. So what opportunities do employees have to feedback when things haven't gone wrong? Is it a safe environment to admit that mistakes have happened? Because we know from other research we've done into things like ethical behaviour, that when there's def- they're seen as ramifications for speaking up, that can be really problematic and stop those issue- that those issues sort of coming to the surface, which is why it's important we think of organisational learning culture as something quite broad because it taps into those other people management practices, other aspects of organisational culture. They're all quite interlinked. Okay, and I've seen a list of uh, some of the wider benefits of uh, a better learning culture, uh, Gavin. I mean, I won't run through them all, but I just wondered which of these might uh, strike a chord with you since you've sort of made changes in the business, efficiency and productivity gains, increased profit, decreased employee turnover as satisfaction levels rise, continuous improvement mindset, we talked about that, uh, developing leaders at all levels. Yeah, I think, you know, I think they're all good ones. The ones that jump out for me as them, that continuous improvement and innovation. So, you know, I think having that in your business, people people like to innovate, you know, from, from my sense. And I think if you're going to grow your business, innovation has got to be key. Um, I think the decreased turnover one, I think, yeah, the way I would put it is, is greater employee engagement. Um, and obviously, you want it to, to be something that's really going to support your growth of your business and, and look after your customers and, and provide for that as well. So that's the, the three that, that resonate for me, Nigel, from that list. Hmm. And I suppose also, Mel, uh, encouraging, enhancing people's ability to embrace change because, I mean, (laughs) well, we've seen a lot of that in the last year. Yeah, absolutely. And thinking about how we can upskill people and and individuals and teams to really be able to embrace that change is really important as well, I think. As you said, we've seen that so much this year. And what an interesting question will be going forward is when the whenever this might be, whenever the sort of change forced by COVID slows down, will organisations stop such agile behaviour or will they really capitalise on what they've learned and really take that forward? And I think that's something really interesting to think about as, as we move into next year and beyond. Well, Melody certainly got us to think about it. And uh, Gav, just maybe one or two tips to end, something that you've done that's proved most effective in sort of changing people's mindsets in uh, improving practices there. I think for us, you know, a few practical tips and then a few cultural tips. So I think what we've tried to do is when when we make things mandatory, what we've tried to do to make that as engaging as possible, to make it as short as possible and to make it as relevant as possible. So to kind of counter the, the culture you talked about at the, the top of the, the call, um, Nigel, how do, we, how do we engage people in a different way? I think then the other thing is how do you really start to focus on that culture? How do you help? people understand what you mean by that and how do you in, in, engage with them so we've done lots of different things this year around just just trying to get people to engage with learning in a totally different way um so yeah i think uh, that's that's for me you know where, where you have to start and and i think the final point and to echo what Mel said, is to understand the role that L&D plays in this cultural piece. You're not, you cannot create this on your own. You're there to to propagate it. You're there to drive it from your position, but you can't do it alone and you need to take all your leaders with you. 
Excellent. Well, I've certainly learned a lot uh, from this edition. With that, we have to take our leave. Uh, let me thank uh, Gavin McQuillan, Head of Learning and Development at NatWest and the CIPD's own Mel Green. Uh, just time to mention our last podcast, which remains highly topical with those endless post-Brexit trade talks still up in the air as we speak. Uh, we spell out the practicalities of the new migration restrictions, events prompting the Association of Professional Staffing Companies to comment that recruiters still feel unprepared without clear access to the flexible international skills they need. So give that uh, last podcast a listen. Uh, Have a look through uh, some of the recent ones. Uh, There's plenty there and uh, subscribe so you never miss an edition. But until next time, from all of us here at the CIPD, it's goodbye and keep safe.